why shouldn't we expect the same type of experience with our service provider that we can get with with other businesses that we interact with? And I had someone explain to me a number of years ago, we had a conversation around value and how do you define value? And this person, the definition that they shared was it was the void that was created when something was removed from the equation. And you think about the service experience and we remove that digital interaction. We remove that ability to see where the driver is, right? That we can get when we work with SafeLight or somebody like that. That creates a void in the value that's being created. And my expectations aren't met anymore because they've shifted. I, I don't think any of us really appreciated how bad a cab ride was until Uber arrived on scene, right? And we tolerated it back then without even knowing that we were tolerating something until something better came along. And now if we have to go back, it's noticeable. And it's the same with people as they, as they interact with service organizations. Welcome to Season 5 of the Service Council In-Service Podcast Series. I'm David Knorr, your host. The global pandemic has forced every equipment manufacturer in every industry to revisit its business model, technology infrastructure, support, and service processes. Field service, support, and experienced leaders have had to challenge their assumptions, accelerate their remote or virtual capabilities, and embrace a cultural transformation. Beyond the human and economic toll, we believe this time to be an opportunity to think and lead differently in the entire customer experience journey. So each month, I will interview executives for what they're seeing, what they're thinking, what they're doing in the after-COVID world to reinforce their brand promise and deliver an exceptional level of support, service, and experiences. So let's get started. He leads the U.S. digital buildings business for Schneider Electric, a recognized pioneer in field services and the building management space. He's a leader in accelerating the digital service experience for commercial buildings. With a career spanning close to four decades, having held positions ranging from the front line to the boardroom, he brings a unique perspective to driving strategic change in the industry. Prior to joining Schneider Electric, he held leadership positions at Comfort Systems, and Johnson Controls. He earned his MBA at the University of Maryland and is based in Dallas, Texas. Join me on this episode of the Service Council's In-Service Podcast with James Milet. Welcome back to another episode of the Service Council's In-Service Podcast series. I'm elated to be joined by a new friend and a a client and and someone that I'm certainly getting to know better and admire for not just what he does, but in large part who he is. James Milet is our guest today. James, welcome. Yeah, equally elated and uh, appreciate the invitation. It's great to have you. For those that may not know as much about you, could you kindly start with your brief background and tell us a little about your, your current role? Yeah. So if I go back to the to the beginning, right? So I was born in Brooklyn, grew up in a family of police officers. So I think this whole notion of service has always been a part of my DNA and who I am. I'm number six of seven boys in the Milet clan, so that's probably where I get my competitive attributes from. I've been in the buildings industry for 40 years with a lot of different roles, 
ranging all the way back to being a refrigeration technician in the 1980s. And my current role is I'm the senior vice president for digital buildings at Schneider Electric. And we're very focused on energy and automation, digital solutions, with a hyper focus on efficiency and sustainability for our clients. For our audience that may not know as much about Schneider, have an overview of the company, and I don't know what the difference is between a regular building and a digital building. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big question that our customers keep coming to us about right now because there's a big push to help bring these buildings into the future. And that's really at the heart of what we do today. So Schneider Electric was uh, named the most sustainable corporation in the world this past year. So a very strong focus from our team's on helping our clients with their sustainability roadmaps, driving energy efficiency measures, both in residential and in commercial buildings. So what is a typical engagement like? You guys are hired by the construction company, the building owners. Tell us a little about how does Schneider get involved with the building? Yeah, that's one of the things I love about this industry is that there really isn't much in the way of typical in what we do. Each each engagement has its own unique aspects to it. So, you know, we some of our clients, you know, they range from uh, large healthcare institutions where we get involved in a project like the uh, pavilion at Penn Medicine, where we worked with the client to build a patient outcome that was very patient centric in terms of the technology application to create a really differentiated patient experience. And then you move to a more traditional client engagement that's focused on energy efficiency. We work with clients like T-Mobile out in Las Vegas. We continue to drive energy efficiency in their facilities. And then what's emerging right now as a, as a trend is this whole notion of building wellness and the need to have facilities that people feel comfortable coming back to and they feel safe coming back to. So we've got a client in New York, uh, 425 Park Avenue. There's actually the first well-certified building in New York City. So we work with them to establish that environment inside that facility. So a lot of variety in what we do. Probably the centering point is around efficiency and sustainability. Love that. And I got to tell you, I've, I've heard of wellness programs for employees, but not not the building yet. What what makes that 425 Park Avenue a certified well building? Yeah. So when you look at the technology application for that particular facility, the design for it in particular was differentiated. And what I mean by that is when you look at most buildings in the U.S., you know, you can count on there being about 30 percent of waste in the energy consumption in the building, which is a real important issue for everyone right now, because when you look at carbon emissions inside of buildings, they account for about 40 percent of the total emissions in the U.S. And, you know, when we think about solving for the climate issues with those kind of numbers, I just don't know how you solve for climate change without solving for buildings. So when you look at the design at 425, it was designed with a lot of that in mind, but it was also designed in a very people-centric way, which is another emerging trend inside of buildings. I think all of us, when we enter a building, we have an expectation that we carry with us that the engagement with the technology will be more similar to what we see in our consumer lives. And unfortunately, for a lot of the building stock that's out there, that's just not the case. So could an example of that energy waste be you know, lights that are left on or things that keep running without any real utilization of it? And I'm also curious about what does people-centric mean? Yeah. So on the waste piece of it, we install automation systems and analytics systems 
that will tease out some of the underlying waste issues in a building. So, for example, when we install this artificial intelligence in a building system, we'll uncover that we have some areas of the building where the heating and the cooling are both working at the same time, right? So opposing forces that are just consuming energy. And if you imagine your house, if somebody left a portable heater on all year round and your air conditioning system was having to work overtime in the summer to compensate for that, you see things like that in existing buildings. And again, you know, the building stock in the U.S., 50% of it was built before 1980. So a lot of that underlying technology needs to be brought into the future. When I talk about people's centricity, it really gets down to the experience that people have when they're in buildings. So think about your consumer experience, for example, when you want to order a pizza or if you want to adjust the lighting in your house. A lot of that is automated today. You can do it through an app. You know, so Alexa, turn off my lights, right? And and if I just turned your lights off, David, I I apologize. But I was going to say thanks a lot, Alexa. Just turned off all my lights. <laughs> exactly. So it's that type of an interaction that we have in our consumer lives, and then when we go into buildings, if we don't get that, it's missed, and there's an expectation that's not met as we engage in the buildings. And the other dynamic that comes into play is when you think about the emerging workforce. That's entering these buildings. The majority of are more and more digitally native, so they grew up, you know, with iPhones in their hand. So again, the expectation that they have of a digitally enabled experience that's about them and their environment and being able to control their temperature in their space or adjust their lighting in their space is very important. So our clients are working hard to bring these buildings into the future. To where they're better prepared to attract and attain and retain the best talent in the marketplace. In typical James Milad format, he's like three steps ahead of me, right? I'm still trying to figure out what the business is, and I love it. He's into the trends. <laughs> so, are these some of the trends that you believe will continue to bolster kind of the digital building success and growth? Yeah, you know, when I think about trends at a high level, there's a couple of key themes that that occupy a lot of our time. So, digitization is obviously one of them. Sustainability equally important. We're seeing more and more focus around electrification. So those are trends that are going to disrupt the industry. But the underlying stats, I hit on a couple of these. So 40% of the world's CO2 emissions are coming from buildings right now. So as we solve for climate change, we have to solve for buildings. That's a major trend. 30% waste in buildings. Opportunity to fund some of these changes that are needed. And you and I, you know, we spend. 80, like most of the folks in the country, we spend about 87 to 90% of our time inside of buildings, right? So these environments are super important. And then the last piece I'd share with you is when you look at the whole notion of IoT and connectivity, there's over 30 billion connected devices in the world today, and that's expected to grow to 75 billion by 2025. So you think about the enablement that that technology is going to provide and how that's going to disrupt everything in terms of how we interact with each other and with the buildings. I'm fascinated by these things that I got to tell you, James, for most of us, we don't think about, right? When you're going on a building, you're right. You may have some expectations. You may notice some things, but most of us don't think about, you know, sensors and devices. And I was talking to another client in their efforts to make coming back a little safer. They're eliminating a lot of door handles and things you would touch with automated kind of open, close, and just fascinating things that facilities teams are, are thinking about. So I'm, I'm really curious about that. I have a question about building management in the U.S. versus the rest of the world. 
Are there some differences and how does digital buildings serve, you know, Schneider's version in Europe or South America or Asia than you do in, in U.S.? Yeah, I think the underlying principles are more similar than they are different. And if you look specifically inside a service and then look again inside of complex facilities like a life sciences building or maybe a data center or a hospital, you know, what is it that the customers are looking for? I think that's where you start, right? If you start from the customer and work back in terms of that experience, what is it that they're looking for? And, you know, is it technical expertise? Yeah. Responsiveness? Probably. But I think the definitions of those have changed as technology becomes more and more a part of how we do things. So, for example, when I think about technical expertise, you know, can we inject that remotely into the frontline service provider through connectivity? When I think about responsiveness, that's been redefined as we went through the pandemic. It's no longer how long will it take you to get here? It's us proactively communicating to the client that they have a problem before they even know about it. So I, I think those things are similar in terms of underlying dynamics. The difference that I'd point to is speed of adoption. And I think by geography, even, even here in the U.S., by geography, you see differences in speed of adoption and transformation. But the reality is at some point, everybody's going to get there because, as you mentioned earlier, the expectations are different today than they were 10, 20 years ago. One of the previous conversations we've had, and you alluded to it earlier, is I can order a pizza and on my you know, Apple Watch with their app, I can see it's in the oven, it's in the car, it's getting delivered. And you're right, you may not deal with me as a consumer, but I'm certainly going to have that expectation of my B2B relationships as well. Is that really driving the evolution of field service, that, that responsiveness, that real-time data that not I always cringe when you hear from your cable company. We'll be there between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. Right. Monday through Friday. Like, really? That That's the window you can give me? So is my expectation as a consumer driving field service responsiveness and evolution? The change in your expectation absolutely is. And I think if I go back to your example, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if we got that response from the cable company, our response might be, oh, so you are going to be here, right? So, and, and now as we fast forward to expectations changing, why shouldn't we expect the same type of experience with our service provider that we can get with, with other businesses that we interact with? And I had someone explain to me a number of years ago, we had a conversation around value and how do you define value? And this person, the definition that they shared was it was the void that was created when something was removed from the equation. So if you think about it in that context, the void that's created when something's removed from the equation, and you think about the service experience, and we remove that digital interaction, we remove that ability to see where the driver is, right, that we can get when we work with SafeLight or somebody like that, that creates a void in the value that's being created. And my expectations aren't met anymore because they've shifted. I don't think any of us really appreciated how bad a cab ride was until Uber arrived on scene, right? And we tolerated it back then without even knowing that we were tolerating something until something better came along. And now if we have to go back, it's noticeable. And it's the same with people as they, as they interact with service organizations. So it's something that that I keep an eye out on. I, I observe my 16-year-old in her native environment 
to get a feel for what the emerging trends are in terms of how she interacts with the world, because it's foreshadowing what services will be, you know, in, in the next as we go forward. Love that observation. And it sounds like we're studying, you know, animals in their, in their native habitats, right? So what is my 16 year old doing with her phone now that I should learn from and apply to my multi billion dollar company? Uh, love that. So talk about this pandemic. You brought up how it's, you know, challenged a lot of our assumptions, how it's, you know, helped us really think through a lot of our status quo. James, in many ways, it has reshuffled our problem stacks, right? So how has Schneider Electric and specifically U.S. Digital Building evolved as an organization through this pandemic? What have you guys done differently? Yeah, I would use the word acceleration for us rather than evolution, because, you know, as I look at the success we had over the past year in, you know, what's arguably one of the most challenging business environments any of us have navigated through, a lot of that success was rooted in decisions and investments we made pre-pandemic without any understanding that there was this pandemic on the horizon. So we had made the decision to transform our training to a digitally first platform. And if you think about the value that that created for our customers, our partners, and our employees as we went through the pandemic, it was exponential. We weren't you know, we weren't in a position where any of that got slowed down. If anything, it accelerated because we made it more accessible to more people. And and it taught us that we could do it. And I, I used to have conversations with, with my leadership team about the need for us to use tools like Skype more often to do video conferencing instead of getting on a plane to go get face-to-face with somebody. And we learned how to do that as we went through the pandemic. And it's created an opportunity for us to reach out to more people than we were able to do before. So I think definitely an accelerator on that front. I also think that it's changed expectations because we've been able to prove to our clients that this notion of digital services can really work. And if we had a client where we had made the investment in the digital infrastructure to allow us to continue to connect to the facility, we were able to do things from an access standpoint that some competitors couldn't do because their mode of, of entry to the building was physical, where ours became digital. And now that we've created that experience, we have some customers that don't want to go back, rightly so. And again, I think, as you mentioned, we, I love that analogy. We didn't know how bad cab rides were before we had Uber. Now that we are reaching people digitally and we can remotely access their environment, I think you're exactly right. Why would you? you know, spend the time, effort, money sending somebody out if I can access it and solve their problem remotely, right? So I, I agree. I think it has accelerated a lot of things that were nice to have, I think, before this pandemic, and it just became front and center. So yep. so what do you believe are the key trends, continuing that kind of that thread, in field service, in support, in customer experience that you think are going to be different in the post-pandemic world on the other side of this? And one of the calibration points for me personally has been to kind of come to grips with this notion that the things that I think are going to be different are already different. So that speed of transformation is exponentially different today than it was five years ago or even 10 years ago. So that that's the first piece that I kind of set this up with. I had an opportunity to go visit with one of the board members on the service council and spent some time with him unpacking his service organization about six months before the pandemic hit. And he shared with me some of 
the changes that he's seen in the way that his customers want to interact with his organization. And the punchline that he shared with me was they don't want to talk to anybody anymore. They, they want to self-serve. They want to be in control that interaction. And I see that spreading, and I think it's gotten accelerated as we've gone through the pandemic. And I think that's going to be very disruptive, especially to companies who haven't laid down the digital asphalt in their own organizations in preparation for you know this wave of change that's, as I said at the beginning, is already upon us. So I do think that the notion of field service is different today than it was even a year ago. And I think it'll be different yet again a year from now as we get more and more comfortable with these new ways of working. That digital asphalt you mentioned, I, I think, takes two things, visionary leadership and then talent. James, one of the challenges with industrial automation and a lot of these technical, deep technical expertise areas is the graying of the industry, right? So we've got a lot of people that are retiring. The apprentice system may not be or the ecosystem may not be there to continue to bring young technicians into kind of the field. Do you believe service talent has become more challenging or less to attract, retain, develop them through this global pandemic and why? I don't believe it's as much of a challenge as our industry makes it out to be. It's not a challenge in terms of attracting talent to services. I think it's more an issue of ensuring that your employee value proposition is aligned with the value drivers that this emerging workforce is looking for. So you know, one of my rules is people buy in for their reasons, not mine. So if I'm wanting a group of prospective team members to join my team, they're going to buy in for their own reasons. So I've got to understand what those reasons are. What's important to the folks that I'm trying to recruit? And frankly, today, in today's environment, you know, a lot of this employee base wants to work for a company where they can make a difference, where they can see their meet, you know, we call it a meaningful purpose in the work that's being done. So for us, you know, when we're trying to tackle issues like climate change and, and put a dent in that and help our clients become more sustainable, you know, carbon neutral. Those are important, meaty topics that people want to be a part of. So when we frame up our value proposition, it has a lot to do with those ends as opposed to the specific tasks that people are engaged in and really helping to connect the dots between the work that we're doing and the impact that we're having on, on the planet, frankly. You and I have spent some time together. One of your folks, Chris Collins, congrats to him, just got promoted as what? Global country manager for Ireland. Like, does the guy even speak Irish? Like, how do, <laughs> how do you, how do you do that? But joking aside, I know you're, you're, you know, coaching and mentoring is big, you know, for you and your team. I'm curious, how are you, your team measured and how do you create and sustain that enterprise value for, for Schneider? Yeah, it's interesting. Chris and I have developed a great relationship over the last few years. And uh, I've got a distant cousin who lives in Canada who's from Ireland that has this thing she puts up called the Irish word of the day. And so I was able to connect Chris to that so we can start to get prepared. He needs the, it. He needs the nuance it. changes in, in <laughs> languages. But no, it's, you know, I, I think I'm very fortunate in that I get to lead a team of what I consider to be peers. And Chris is a great example of that. You know, he's uh, he's been on my team for a while now and just got promoted to lead our business in Ireland as our country president. And, you know, the measurements for Chris in his new role 
and Chris in the role that he's occupied for me here as the VP of Systems Transformation. At the end of the day, they're the same in that our, our job here is to deliver sustainable and profitable growth for the business. You know, it, the how we do that is part of the magic. And when we get into the weeds on the, the measurements that we look at, they're really all about leading and lag indicators towards that end. So we put in place measurements that really track our ability to execute on our strategy and whether or not we're delivering on, on that execution. So, you know, growth in digitally enabled services. So that's a metric that we look at. It helps me understand our team's progress and helping our clients bring their technology infrastructure into the future. Big, big issue for us. You know, on the people side of things, obviously safety and engagement are paramount, but we're also measuring our progress on building out a workforce that better reflects the society that we work in. We spend a lot of time here on inclusion, and uh, we, we look at the things that we're doing to move the needle on that front. But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, all these things contribute to our ability to diver, deliver sustainable and profitable growth for the company. I love that. So in thinking about your own journey, I love that you started, the, what did you say, as a technician, and you've spent 40 years in, in the space. Are there you know, pieces of advice or coaching, James, that you received in that journey that you believe beyond kind of a short-term execution or performance or results really have had a profound impact on you as a leader? That's a great question. There, there's a number. I mean, it's a long list. I've been fortunate to work for some really impactful leaders and with some peers that have really made a difference in, in building a better me along the way. But there's a couple of specifics I'd share. You know, I remember when I got my first big corporate role. I was with another organization and part of the role was I had to move to the headquarters building and the VP who ran the division. So I'll, I'll call him Tom, mostly because his name is Tom. So Tom pulled me into his office and we had a chat about the new job. And his, his coaching to me was to not let the building change me. And he described some situations where the environment and the building, as he referred to it, had changed leaders who had come up there and worked there for a while. And I think, you know, my personal interpretation of that coaching was to always be true to yourself. And that's been something that's that's been a compass for me as I've navigated, you know, my career along the way. That's one. The next thing I'd share is I've learned to always be in upgrade mode. And I mean that both personally and when I think about building out the organization. So if I'm living in a 10.0 world and I'm running a 2.0 version of James, I'm not going to make it. Right? I'm, I'm just not going to be successful in that situation. So I've always got to be thinking about personally upgrading myself and to become the best version of James that's possible, right? To, to run the latest internal software as I lead. But think about the organization. We're always working on transformations with a focus on obsoleting the ways that we work. So think about that, right? It, when you think about transformation, major transformation that's not a tweak, our focus is to really unpack the work that we're doing and find ways to obsolete it so that we can change the game in the marketplace. So that's big area of focus for us. And that would be a coaching point that I'd share with people to always be trying to find a way to obsolete what you do before somebody else figures it out for you. Now, the, the last thing I'd share, and it, it kind of going back to the, the beginning question, you know, as I reflect back on some of the things that have had an impact on me, I do coach people up to periodically just take an inventory of, of what you're asking me and think about the coaching and advice that's made a difference for you personally, and then use that as motivation to pay it forward. 
because I, I do think there's an opportunity for all of us to make a bigger difference than maybe we give ourselves credit for as we create opportunities for people or help coach people up or have the courage to offer feedback when it's needed, even if it's uncomfortable for us to provide it. I think there's, a, there's an obligation that we have, especially if we've been fortunate enough to receive it, to pay it forward. So that would be the last point I'd make. I was going to tell our audience, the segment about obsolescence and always be upgrading is brought to you by Apple and the latest iPhone, because as soon as you buy the 12, the 15 will be out and you're going to be forced to pay millions of dollars for your new device. So, but again, <laughs> joking aside, what great, great advice, I think, for all of our you know, audiences to really think about in terms of, and again, don't, you know, be true to yourself. I love that. Always in the upgrade mode. So, so in a 10.0 world, where's James? I know you're not 2.0. Where are you now? Yeah, so it's, it's a moving target. It's interesting. I, I do a lot of mentoring with some of the emerging talent and I find ways to inject myself into that equation wherever I can. And, and part of that is to just continue to, to make sure that my own relevance is staying up with where the market is. So for, I'll give you a great example. I, I was, I was doing a coaching session with a group and there's, there's a piece that is kind of a touchstone for me called Message to Garcia. And it's, it's a really short read that was written a long time ago. And it, the key outcome is just find a way to get things done. And I, I shared that with the team and it was, it was interpreted very different than the way that it came through my filter. And they struggled with some of the messages inside of that material not being about empowerment and making your own decisions and why would somebody just take an order and go do it, right? So it's checkpoints like that that are really important because the dynamics are always changing around us and, and you have to have some good listening posts so that you can, you can have clarity around where you sit on that continuum. So hopefully if I'm in a 10.0 world, I'm at an 8.0 with the 9.0 upgrade on the way shortly. Love that. Love that mindset. And, and in Curve Vendors, I talked about, you know, your ability to remain relevant heavily depends on your growth, digital and entrepreneurial mindset. And it sounds like you've, you've absolutely embraced that idea. So you brought up Service Council. Uh, obviously, I know you're very active. Talk about what's been the highlight of your experience with, with the Service Council. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, uh, where do I start? You know, I, I mentioned the, the visit that I, I did with one of the board members, that was a game changer for me because that conversation fell into the myth-busting bucket for me. I mean, there were some things that, that were being shared with me about the service model at that organization that really flew in the face of some long-held norms that I had, and it changed the way I looked at things. So I, I think specifically to the question, it's the collaboration and the opportunity to learn that have been the highlights. And you know, it was a long list that I can point to. I remember when Renee shared the Safe Light model and the things that they were doing with technology to remove effort from their customers, to make it easier for their customers to do business with their company. That was a game changer for me. And then the flip side of that was how they were using the technology to remove effort for their people so that their people can do their jobs more effortlessly. I, you know, I remember when I first got introduced to Ron Kaufman and had him walk through his service escalator. And that's a piece that I continue to use as a touchstone. And it helps me explain this whole model around people centricity and how expectations are always shifting, especially when it comes to a digitally native population. And then, you know, David, recently we, my team got to work with you on our transformation storyboard. And that was a real game changer for us. And I, I think the thing my team appreciated the most 
about their interaction with you is, and these are my words, not theirs, but I think your willingness to call them out on using language that just there was no way it was going to resonate with the target audience, right? And that's, at the end of the day, that's what your friends do for you. They, they give you the feedback that you may not want to hear, but you need to hear to improve. And you had that kind of an impact with our team. And the product was just phenomenal. I mean, the, the hero program that we have for our frontline workforce is going to be a game changer on the engagement front. And it puts us in a position where we can truly recognize the unbelievable work that our people are doing every day to help our customers. It There, there was a message I shared with, with my team when I took this role a few years ago. And, and philosophically, my view is there should be two groups of people in an organization like ours. There's a group of people who serve customers and there's a group of people who help those who serve customers. And I think the storyboarding that you helped us put together really reinforced that message. Very kind of you to say that. And for our audience, uh, James is referring to a, a new arm, a new division of the Service Council called Service Evolve. And we worked with James and his team, fabulous team, by the way, and a testament to the caliber of talent you attract and in Chris and Karen and Ethan, that whole team around something called strategy visualization. And James, you're exactly right in the fact that a lot of organizations, especially corporate, has a set of priorities, has an agenda. And this is what we need to kind of make sure the team and the field understands. Unfortunately, that may not be the language in which the team, you know, field speaks. So if you go to them with, you know, whether it's margin conversations or, you know, priority in rolling out a technology or adoption of something, that's not really what they care about. They care about as a field technician, what I found is, you know, do I have the right parts on my truck? Am I taking care of my customers? How am I better off? How do you make my life easier? How do you remove friction from my day-to-day interactions? And again, kudos to your team because they were open to an outsider's perspective, which is the other thing that I really want the audience to hear is if you live, eat, breathe, service, support day in and day out, there's a tendency to embrace groupthink. And, and by definition, then you get myopic of, right, but this is all I care about. Yeah, but that's not how the rest of the world functions. So again, it was, it's been great to work with you and, and your team and, and what a fabulous opportunity. I love that. And you guys took it and ran with it, the heroes kind of award. And, and uh, it's great to see the impact on that. So you've been fabulous for our audience. If you joined us late, you've been listening to James Milet, Senior Vice President of U.S. Digital Buildings at Schneider Electric on the Service Council Advisory Board and just a great all-around guy. By the way, also just on this call, I found out that he's a motorcycle rider. Now, the unfortunate part is he rides Harleys. And I got to tell you, friends don't let friends buy Harleys. I'm joking. <laughs> Harley's a great brand, but I can't wait to get beyond this pandemic and hopefully uh, get on a bike ride together. What's the best way for our audience to learn more about you and your work? You know, LinkedIn is, is a good place to kind of keep track of what I'm up to and what our team is up to. We use that as a platform to share some of the innovation that we're doing, share some success stories. We just ran a, a story highlighting Ericsson, who's one of our clients, that the World Economic Forum just recognized them as a lighthouse factory. And, and it's just up the road from where I live here, north of Dallas. And so we work with them to really put together a totally different design for that facility that was a game changer for them and, and established them as a lighthouse in the industry. So great platform that we use quite a bit, and that's probably the best place to keep track what we're up to and where we're at. Thank you for being our guest on the In Service podcast series. I oh, appreciate the invite. 
look forward to joining you again at some point. With over 5,000 active participants, Service Council is a community of service executives leading global brands well-known for their service and support strategies. We engage service leaders who are looking to sharpen their knowledge, insights, and expand their relationships across a variety of functions, including service delivery, field service, customer support, customer experience, service parts and supply chain, as well as technology. Learn more on how to become a member a solution partner, or a Smarter Services Executive Symposium sponsor, and join us at servicecouncil.com slash community. What a fabulous conversation with James Myled. I, I hope you also, you know, got a ton of value from our discussion. I, I've, I've been blessed to kind of get to know him over the last year and as you ascertain, maybe from some of his comments, incredibly intelligent, uh, one of those absolute servant leaders. He's surrounded himself by some really, really sharp people that I've met and we've worked with. And as you can see, he's, uh, you know, from his just comments that he made, he absolutely has that growth mindset for himself, for his team, for his organization. So this is the NOR notes, summary notes in three minutes or less. Hopefully, practical, pragmatic ideas you can immediately put to use. Listen to some of the comments he made, right? So I captured, number one, obviously, the title of this session, Redefining Responsiveness. He's exactly right. Every one of us is a consumer. And as a consumer, if I can interact with Amazon and the pizza delivery place and a lot of those things that I get immediate, what do you mean it's going to take your service organization three days to get that part? Right, So our expectations are increasing at an accelerated pace, and that's going to directly translate to your field service support experience business. Talked about trends, trends and, and what COVID, what this pandemic has done in accelerating things like their digital remote, digital service. Um, what trends are you observing? What trends you believe are going to stay with us in the post-pandemic world? Listen to his comment about recalibration point, right? So things that are things that are, will be different already are different, right? So uh, what's happening? The digital asphalt that he talked about, are you laying enough of that? Are you leading your initiatives with digital first? Talent, people buy in for their reasons, not mine, right? Um, and of course, the advice. I love that profound impact question from leaders because it really highlights beyond what they've accomplished, who, who they really are. So don't let this building change you, right? Be true to yourself. Always be in the upgrade mode. I love that. I want to steal it, right? And send them a dollar every time I use it. But are you a 2.0 version of you living in and working in a 10.0 world? Because that's you're not going to be relevant. And then, and then certainly last but not least, this idea of um, service council. Get involved. He's on the advisory board. Uh, he's building relationships. He's learning from others. He was kind enough to talk about the transformational you know, storyboard that we worked with him on. He's leveraging his service council relationships to improve himself, his team, his organization. So uh, three quick points. Number one, 
James is going to be our uh, guest on LinkedIn Live today through Service Council. So I hope you'll join us at noon Eastern. Number two, we take the show notes from these podcasts and turn them into more in-depth articles. So make sure you check out the Service Council blog. Number three, we have some fabulous guests coming up. So I hope you'll continue to subscribe to the in-service podcast series wherever you consume podcasts. We are so thankful for our listeners on the in-service podcast series and want to continue to produce content you want to hear. So we'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow Service Council on various social media channels for all of our latest updates using hashtag in-service podcasts.